even though the time has gone by so quickly. And um, we come to the last of the seven factors of awakening, which is equanimity. And I do identify as a person of color, POC, but I, when I was wa- writing this talk, I think I really identify as a POE, a person of extremes. <laughs> and so I have a part of me is this very addictive um, character. And so you, you know, whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or food or work or relationships, I've been there in this addictive mode. And there's a flip side to addiction, of course, and that is uh, rage. The the extreme pushing away of experience. And so the addiction, the greed of addiction and the aversion of rage is always about not wanting things to be the way they are. So this talk on equanimity is called The Ocean of Experience. And uh, I'll start with a quote from uh, musical theater, because <laughs> musicals, you know, are a gay spiritual practice. <laughs> and so Jonathan Larson, who wrote Rent, you may know Rent, uh, wrote actually a musical before Rent. And uh, I love this quote. He says, he writes, Why do we seek ecstasy in all the wrong places? Why is it hard to see that heaven can have simpler faces? And I'm reminded, though, as I was ruminating about my own experience through these extremes of addiction and rage and the extremes of pleasure and um, uh, pain, is that the Buddha's own life sought ecstasy in all the wrong places. So for the first 29 years of his life, he lived in this splendorous opulence that had every pleasure uh, at his disposal. Physical, sensual, material, uh, three palaces for the different seasons, was never exposed to anything that was, um, uh, was painful or um, uh, distressing. And there was a point in which he knew that this was, even though he had all of the ecstasy that he could desire, it was not enough that there was something more. And so when he went into homelessness, when he went and, and uh, went on his spiritual search, he went into the opposite extreme of this extreme asceticism, self-mortification. He was down, it is said, to eating one rice grain a day. And there are statues of him in Asia that don't look so good. You know, he's... <laughs> His stomach is touching his backbone. 
is how emaciated he got. And um, it was actually the act of generosity by um, a woman offering, um, uh, offering him some milk that he had this experience of realizing that there's a middle path. Each time we go into retreat, we follow these footsteps of the Buddha to his Bodhi tree. And if we follow our mindfulness, it leads to the exploration of what really is freedom. Exploring what really will lead to happiness. So this exploration hopefully has become clearer for you as the retreat has lengthened. You know, here we are in this incredible setting. The weather has turned out to be so amazing. And um, the vegetation, and I don't know if you've noticed, but the animal life and the relationship of the animal life to the land and to the center. The food is, I don't know, I've been, I've been in ecstasy over the food. <laughs> We have this community that we've created that is intended to be safe. We have these priceless teachings, managers to provide every need that we might have. And as we sit, are we at peace? Is the mind quiet and calm? Are we free of anger and ill will and resentment or self-judgment or shame, these things that are coming up in the interviews? <laughs> I haven't sat in on all of them, but what's that about? Our conditioned mind desires things that are pleasant and desires to get rid of unpleasant experience. We have said this over and over again. The mind is constantly buffeted by the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of our, our life. That is the definition of this human life, that it has 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. The image of equanimity is like riding the waves of an ocean. The immensity of the ocean is like the immensity of our lived experience with every single moment, past, present, and future. The waves are the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And while the waves are part of the ocean's experience, it is not the totality of the ocean itself. And so our joys and our sorrows are not the totality of our life. Our life is so much more than just these waves. There are times in which there are no waves. And there are times in which there are these violent turbulences that arise. Can we float on the ocean and ride the waves? So the, the Pali word for equanimity is upeka. 
and it means to look at, to perceive patiently. And one image of equanimity is a kind of balance, sort of resting the mind before it falls into the extremes that I was talking about. The image I have is that it, that it is in balance so that it can protect itself from falling down and hurting itself. Seeing things as they are with an attitude of non-reactivity, a spacious stillness that allows us to be fully present with all the changing experiences of our lives. But our culture is really conditioned to extremes. We search for both the highs and the lows constantly. You know, we, we actually can live in those highs. We want them so badly. We can actually live in the lows. Sometimes, you know, we, we actually um, uh, create the melodrama in our lives we actually can, don't have that many sort of collective skills in living in the middle. I was um, uh, in San Francisco where I live and there was this clothing store that I walked by and they changed their advertisement and across, there was a banner across it and said, moderation kills the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're selling. <laughs> Being in the middle isn't one of our strengths. And you can even see this in sort of the recent politics. It's very hard to stay in the center, in the, in, to, to hold your own, to, to be neutral even. Once you even make, you know, sort of an inclination in one direction, there's actually, I found for myself, an inclination to push the other side away and make them wrong, as opposed to just have the inclination. So the extreme of not only inclining but also pushing away. So in the Brahma Viharas, it's, it's, uh, which equanimity is a part of as well, there are these near and far enemies. And so the, the far enemy, which is the opposite of equanimity, is the rea this reactivity to extremes. So what is non-reactivity? What does that mean? Part of this is the instructions that Bhante shared with us this morning around um, the teachings of Vedana not noticing the sensations of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, so that we're not unconsciously controlled by them, that we push away the unpleasant, that we grab the pleasant, and that basically our attention and awareness falls off the neutral. The Buddha said, where there is attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is not possible. Period. The Vedana teaching is so important. 
our concept of freedom is really skewed by our cultural conditioning. Freedom is not doing whatever we want to do, wherever we want to do it, whenever we want to do it, with whom we want to do it. That is an addiction to pleasant experiences. And when, or it's an escape from unpleasant experiences. And when we think that addiction and escape is freedom, that's delusion. The Buddha gave another teaching that helps us come to this middle ground between the extremes, and it's called the Santitakatha, which is the instructions for the rich. You who want to escape from all the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy even if they're in heaven. People who do not know satisfaction are poor even if they're rich. People who do know satisfaction are rich even if they're poor. Being content with what is. This is some of the um, direction of the invitations we've offered all week. Is this breath okay right now? Not needing it to be anything other than it is. Is this sitting okay regardless of the sensations that arise? Is it possible to eat five bites from full? To be content as opposing to go over. But our mind is conditioned towards satiating desire. And to be unaware of the consequences of feeding this energy of desire. And the consequence is that desire can never be satiated. Why do we want to seek ecstasy in all the wrong places? Heaven does have an unexpected simple face, and that is by reframing the question, why do we seek ecstasy? All desire is the desire for no desire. All desire is the desire of that plateau of satisfaction and contentment. Those of you who are in recovery like I do, I am, know that the whole culture around drugs is, is that high that we want to just be at and continue. But it never does because it changes and it crashes big time in subtler ways. That's part of our whole experience with desire. Desire actually seeks its own destruction. It seeks the contentment, but doesn't know where to find it because desire does not have wisdom. It doesn't have insight. 
only awareness does. Desire cannot see into the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering is desire itself, craving itself. So just as the mind has been conditioned to be unaware, it can be conditioned to be aware, to be content, to be equanimous. So even when we're dissatisfied, when we want something to be other than it is, can we still be satisfied? Can we be satisfied with both dissatisfaction and satisfaction? This is what Gina was referring to around the practice of no preference. Can we ride the waves of dukkha? Dukkha is this dissatisfaction, sometimes it's called suffering, but it's, the image is this uh, uh, rectangular spoke in a round um, uh, axle hole. And so it's constantly rubbing against and, and, and causing discomfort, pain. This is the practice of equanimity, the inclusion of all of our experiences, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Rather than just riding the waves, it is the inclusion of all. The freedom of equanimity invites us into this experience of practicing awareness patiently. Patience, acceptance, you may totally agree, disagree with what I'm saying right now, and are you okay with that? And why do we do this? Why do we want to practice equanimity? Because equanimity is not a passive activity. It is not about doing nothing. It is not about being a bystander or even and running away. It is about creating the space so that your awareness can allow insight and wisdom to arise and your actions will be truly beneficial. How often, with the best intentions, do we go to fix something and we actually screw it all up? How often do we, you know, try to uh, rectify some injury or injustice and we actually make things worse? One of the earliest, uh, I don't know if it's one of the earliest teachings, because, but it's one of the earliest written teachings of the Buddha that was recorded in the Itivuttaka. It, Itivuttaka, as it, as it was said, is that we have to understand the true nature of harmful things in order to eliminate the harm. It means sitting with 
the totality of these 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows in order to know what's happening. And as we sit, especially with the discomfort, especially with the things that are painful, we actually break the cycle of samsara. We break the cycle of reactivity. And so sitting with the physical discomfort on the cushion or the chair is such an important practice. Sitting and just noticing how far you can tolerate, notice, and really begin to understand the true nature of what the pain is. When I was sitting in Thailand, I mean, our Dharma talks are about an hour. In Thailand, they go on for three or four hours, sometimes more than one day. And there are not these nice little cushy zafus and zabutans. It's such a good practice. It's such a good practice to sit with a teacher you don't like. (laughs) (laughs) These are the mental discomforts and physical discomforts that allow us to really hold everything in our lives. So the noise in the meditation hall, the pro, you know, if there are any problems with your rooms or your roommate. You know, you may even have heard things in the Dharma talks that you don't either understand or, or, or agree with. In spite of all of that, is there freedom? Is there a calm place in whatever disturbance is happening? Are there conditions to your freedom? Are there prerequisites for you to get there in terms of what needs to be here? That the room has to look a certain way or you have to sit in a certain chair and if someone sits in it. (laughs) Who would you be without these prerequisites? Because really, there are none to your freedom. As a person of color, as a man who loves other men, in the halls of most of these meditation centers that we have, I do not see myself. I do not hear my life story. And for a long time, I wanted to change the room. I wanted the room to be more like me. I spent a lot of time suffering from both the mental aggravation and um, the feeling of uh, not feeling safe, isolation. What this practice has offered me is the ability to practice despite our collective cultural unconsciousness. The ability to practice anywhere, with anyone, with any teacher, 
If I stopped practicing today, that's a lot of freedom. And of course, things are unfair. There's this, um, a couple of years ago, actually, I just remembered that um, it, was, it was where I met Bhante in Burma. Um, I was doing a three-week retreat, and then there was a day um, break. And then there was another three-week retreat in which the, it was a retreat on the Abhidharma, or the Buddhist psychology, and that's where I met Bhante. And um, we had the option of going to Mandalay for, you know, just as a break to have a meal. And so a group of the practitioners and I went to have lunch. And uh, I was the only person of color in the group. And this was in Asia, right? <laughs> <laughs> And we were talking about, we were talking about um, wi tra just traveling to different countries and, um, you know, Thailand, Burma, India. And uh, one person said, but I'll never go to China. And of course, my yellow flags go up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm breathing. And they proceed to go on about their opinion of how dirty the Chinese people are. Yeah. And, you know, you've been in retreat how open you are. And I had to also believe that this person was open too. I mean, in some way. And um, so clearly that person didn't know my cultural origin. Um, and so in that moment, I decided indirectly um, to address it. And I, what I did was I s just started asking the person next to me what their background was, where they come from, where their family is. And we just started a conversation, and, you know, and it went around the table. And of course, it got to me. <laughs> and I was able to really say and describe the impact indirectly that statement had on me without matching her energy, her aversion. Of course, life is unfair. I mean, it's not unfair that I was in that situation. But is fairness a prerequisite for our freedom? Black Elk, who is a Ogallala Lakota medicine man who lived a very long time. I think he passed away in 1950. So he saw the decimation of native peoples. He saw the destruction of, of the educational systems of, of the American Indian children and 
the, uh, the breakup of families, he speaks to this unfairness and says, do not grieve. Misfortunes will happen to the wisest and best of men. Death will come always out of season. It is the command of the Great Spirit and all nations and all people must obey. What is past and what cannot be prevented should not be grieved for. Misfortunes do not flourish particularly in our own life. They grow everywhere. The ability to hold that larger picture, it doesn't mean that we don't work for change, that we don't work for the elimination of suffering and injustice. Equanimity provides the spaciousness to do that really demanding, sometimes frustrating activity. It provides the space so that your actions will have a greater chance of truly benefiting and not causing harm. So part of the spaciousness that I'd like to address is some of you who are new to this retreat are getting a sense of how precious this space is, how precious this opportunity to practice, how precious it is to enter the Dharma in a safe and um, protected way. And for those of you who have come to this event more than once, maybe every time, You also know the preciousness of this Dharma door. And I would encourage you not to be attached to the door. These doorways into the Dharma are priceless. And there is so much more beyond the door. That is how much space there is. In one of my interviews, a practitioner said, on the second day of practice, I discovered a whole world inside of myself that I never knew about. That was on the second day. What if we practice more than that? How much more is there to discover? We are so much more than people of color than African Americans, than Asians, than Latinos, than men, than women, than transgender, than we are so much more. Our lived experience is so much more than the labels that are given to us or that we choose to take on. This is an opportunity to explore that. The labels are useful and needed, but there is also an experience beyond all of that. So again, I want to go back to how equanimity is not 
being, it's not about being a doormat. It's not about being passive or fatalistic. Non-reactivity is not non-activity. So one day the Buddha was invited to a certain house for a meal. And as he got there, he was bombarded by insults and filthy language. And the host was calling him uh, a swine, brute, or an ox. However, the Buddha was not offended and did not retaliate. Calmly, he asked his host what he would do when guests visited his house. The host replied he would prepare a meal for them. And what if they did not eat it, asked the Buddha. In that case, we ourselves would eat the meal, replied the host. And the Buddha replied, well, good brother, you have invited me to your house for a meal, but instead you have entertained me with a torrent of abuse. I do not accept it. Please receive it back to yourself to feast on. (laughs) (laughs) And a teaching from Martin Luther King, Jr. We can stand up before our most violent opponent and say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with our soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. Throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Be assured that we will ride you down by our capacity to suffer. One day, we will win our freedom, but we will not only win the freedom of ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Equanimity is the capacity to be fully engaged and not act in a way that diminishes your vision of who you really are. So we talked about the far enemy of equanimity, which is this reactivity to extremes. There is a near enemy, which is something that looks like equanimity, but it is not. And that is the feeling of indifference or not caring, apathy. There's a word in our culture that perfectly expresses it. I'm sure that most of us have used it very frequently, because I know that I do. And it's that word, whatever. (laughs) Right? How quickly that has imploded in our culture. It actually was only used in that way since the mid-70s. I lo- there's, there's on the internet, of course, you know, everything's on the internet. But there's this urban dictionary, and uh, so people just type in their definitions of words, and so I looked up whatever. And it says, nothing you say or do could make you matter to me. I am actually upset that you are stealing my air. <laughs> That is not equanimity. (laughs) 
And actually, this is, this is an issue among our young people. And so one of the, uh, one of the schools um, was doing, a, um, uh, I guess, a meeting of faculty of how to deal with apathy and indifference in, in, um, in the classrooms. And, and one of the things that came up was this use of whatever as a, as a diss. And, and um, people were asking for responses to this apathy. Or, and one teacher said, just two words, hug them, of course. And it's really bringing this loving aspect of mindfulness and metta to even that. We think when we're not attached that we can't care. But if we pay attention, we deeply care to see the truth and the ability to accept things that we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that may be the serenity prayer, but that is also equanimity talking because there is activity, there is action in non-reactivity. It is the activity that emerges from wisdom, knowing what you can and cannot do. Bhante used the image yesterday of riding a bicycle. And it's a really a perfect image of the practice of equanimity because it's not about a practice of perfection. You get on a bike, you've never been on a bike before, and you're going to scrape your knee. You're going to fall down. You're going to get up. You're going to try it again. You're going to wobble. So the practice of equanimity, not unlike um, the practice of metta or compassion, is an incremental practice. There are phrases, just like the loving-kindness phrases, that you can um, absorb into your own practice in using the words that, that make most sense to you. Some of these phrases, and I'll post them later on the bulletin board. You are the heir of your own karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends upon your actions and not my wishes. I wish you well, but I cannot make choices for you. I care about you and will support you in your life, but cannot control the outcome. Things are just as they are. This moment is just as it is. And just as the loving-kindness practice, it's a practice rippling into all the beings that are around us, starting with people that are close and going out. But with the equanimity practice, it's really encouraged that you start with a neutral person, as opposed to yourself or a loved one. And when you're practicing equanimity on for others or, you know, a difficult situation, again, it's an incremental practice, so it, you're encouraged and invited not to choose the most difficult situation in your life, not to choose the most triggering, 
injury that you've experienced. But to begin with things that are smaller in gravity. As we work through this purification process of our experience, our transformation, our healing, we are changing not just ourselves, but our, all of our communities. We are changing historical and generational patterns, including the experience of trauma and oppression. So this story is not just about gay men, but it comes from a gay retreat that I recently taught. In the company of heterosexuals, I am always to some extent on guard. I am old enough that when I came of age, being queer was still listed as a mental disorder. Boys in my high school used to boast of going and rolling queers. With a few precious exceptions, sex was something desperate and dangerous done with someone you didn't know. Nowhere I looked, nowhere were there any positive images, messages, or role models. All this comes from the unquestioned heterosexist privilege that is, to some extent, still with us. A person doesn't just get over growing up in that kind of environment. I have dealt with crippled self-esteem and depression all my life. So, in the retreat last weekend, I experienced a momentary thawing of my frozen heart. It was so beautiful to me to be in the company of other gay and bisexual men, each having humbly come to practice. This lump of unprocessed pain began to move. I have work to do and I will seek the Dharma to do it in. This is not about him just changing his own experience. This is about a community healing itself. All of our communities have the capacity and the invitation into that healing. In the Deep South, one of you practitioners is taking the metta practice under trees in which men have been lynched to begin the healing of the legacy of slavery and the violence of racism. This is the power. This is the immensity of our practice. Who is going to show us how to bring our Dharma practice into our everyday life? In the overwhelm of traumatic experience, the question can arise, why me? But the question of awareness is, who else? Who else could possibly know how to heal our lives? That is the huge potential of the Dharma in our communities. Equanimity is not the end of the conditions causing the pain. Those conditions may take lifetimes to change. But in spite of those conditions, 
there are moments of freedom. Getting rid of the conditions is not a prerequisite to that freedom. It's not just about your practice. It's not just about my practice. It's not about our individual awakening or enlightenment or freedom. It's about transformation of our communities, of our world, that so needs transformation. When we are in balance and practice equanimity with the moment, we are creating freedom for ourselves and the world and the world's yet to be. We are ancestors of the generations yet to be born. All wisdom traditions, especially our native brothers and sisters, teach us this. We are elders regardless of our age. That there is a magnitude and spaciousness in that aspect of our practice. Can you feel this as the ocean of our experience? This collective embodiment of our practice. This is the great journey that we're on together. Anna Julia Cooper, who also lived a very long time into, um, into the 60s, but born a slave, she was one of the most important educators in her lifetime, said, the cause of freedom is not the cause of a race or a sect or a party or a class. It is the cause of humankind, the very birthright of humanity. This is the great journey of our birthright. And we have said this over and over again, that it is possible. The Buddha said he would not teach something that we could not do. I started this talk about each time we go into retreat, following the Buddha's footsteps. What happens when we leave retreat? So about two years ago was the time that um, I came home from Thailand after having spent six months um, in retreat and as a monastic. And I came home to uh, my partner and um, my apartment and my family, my parents. And there was um, a little bit of projection going on. My partner, uh, there was, the the relationship was a really, um, uh, I, I felt that I could do no wrong. You know, it was like I had been, there was this, projection that I had gone through something so special. And, um, and so uh, my teacher, Jack Cornfield, called to find out how I was. And I wasn't there, so Stephen answered the phone. And he was gushing. You know, he's, Larry is so you know, joyful. He's so calm. He's glowing. And 
you know, he's, uh, he's so serene. And there was a pause. And Jack said, just wait a few days. <laughs> and sure enough, my schedule became the busiest it's ever been. I got stressed. I got irritated. I had a good time on vacations. I experienced loss. I accomplished some things. I got really moody. I gained weight. And this good life continues with innumerable waves going in the ocean of our experience. True freedom does not mean to be in a place where there is no problem, struggle, or oppression. It means to be in the midst of those things and still be free in your heart. So just like the fading sound of the bell, just allowing the words and the meanings to recede into the background. Just allowing yourself to return to your own experience in this moment and the preciousness of the silence that remains in our time together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.